0: Out of respect for the reading of God's Word, this is from Genesis chapter 8. "'But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed. The rains from the heaven was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually, continually. At the end of the 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month, in the 10th month on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the windows of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. And so he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And so Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. And then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 600th year, the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, and bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all the flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And so Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, you are the renewer of all things. You are in the business of renewing and restoring and bringing things back uh, to their pristine condition. Bringing them back and bringing them into what you have always intended, Lord. Your will will not be thwarted and your plan for the redemption of your creation, including the redemption of us, your people, will not be thwarted, Lord. And so we pray you would help us to see that and trust that, And take heart and take courage in that, that even though tearing down is the process, is the first part of any process of rebuilding, uh, and even in those moments, those moments might seem long and lonely, we can know that you are at work and that you are completing the work that you have promised of restoring us and restoring the earth. So help us to see that. Help us to see the beauty of Jesus We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. And we trust that you will be beautifying us, your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I remember in some class in seminary, I can't remember which one, but... Some class in seminary or some reading, I ran across this study that, that uh, psychologists had done in two, 2014, Well, they took people, just regular people, and they asked them, they sat them down in a room that, was, that didn't have anything, or just an empty room, they took their cell phones from them, they took away any distractions, the only thing that was in the room was a chair and a machine that gave them a painful electric shock. And they, they tested it out. They hooked him up to the electric shock machine. They gave him a volt. They gave him a, a, a shock to show him, like, what it was. And they asked them like, what would you do to avoid receiving a shock like this? And almost everybody said, oh, we'd pay money. I'd, I'd give you money to not shock me again. I'd pay to not get shocked again by that thing. And then they left them alone in the room for 15 minutes. What do you think happened? Any guesses? Sixty-seven percent of the people in the room ended up shocking themselves with the machine while they sat there. And the the takeaway was, the takeaway of the story was that s- just waiting and sitting in quiet with nothing but your own thoughts for most people is so uncomfortable that they would rather shock themselves with an electric shock machine. than than endure just sitting and waiting quietly. It says a lot about us, and I think, you know, maybe things are even getting worse along those lines, or certainly our smartphones are filling that gap or creating us or turning us into people that are even less able to sit quietly and to sit and wait and to sit uh, in the company of our own thoughts as our mind turns inward uh, but there's similar dynamics. What am I, why am I telling you this story? There's similar dynamics that play out in the Christian life, aren't there? Uh, there's, you know, different, there's different phases, different um, parts of our Christian life. There's, the, there's parts of our life and our Christian walk that are really exciting, where you can really feel God's momentum, and that you feel like you're building something, and there's a sense of progress, and that's exciting, uh, you know, church planning was like that. In the very beginning, when we were building and adding people and growing and putting things together, it was a super, super exciting time. Uh, and we loved that so much that oftentimes people manufacture excitement to keep, uh, to keep it going. Uh, but even, even the times of chaos, even the times of tumult and crisis, and even times of conflict, uh, gives you something to focus on outside of yourself and a a focal point in the future that when this, as soon as I get over this hump, then things are gonna be okay. So much so that oftentimes people also manufacture crisis in their lives. Uh, But most of the Christian life's not like that. Most of our lives are, it's very different, it's very normal. Nothing particularly exciting, nothing particularly monumental, no real crisis or trouble brewing unless you happen to be an individual who's especially good at manufacturing crisis. Uh, It's just another day of getting up, going to work, doing your chores, going to school, eating your food, doing what you do every day and being engaged in this very simple and yet oftentimes very difficult process or the or, um, very difficult part of life of just loving the people around you in the everyday, in the everyday uh, monotony of life, just getting up and wondering what God is up to, wondering sometimes maybe if He's still even there, and if He's ever going to get around to doing something exciting again. Or doing what he's promised to do. And, and that's where, that's what struck me as I meditated and thought and prayed through this passage this month or this week. This is really where our, the hero of our story, Noah, finds himself. Noah, in this portion of the flood narrative, is Waiting. He's just waiting. If you track the story so far, the beginning of Noah's story, full of excitement, he's building the ark, he gets the call from God, there's a conscious sense of God's presence with him, Uh, the gathering, the animals, the flurry of getting everything ready and preparations, and sometimes the Christian life is like that. It's super exciting. It's a big dopamine hit of excitement and promise of the future, and we love that, love it, love it, love it. Uh, And then, in the middle of Noah's story, in the middle of the flood story, uh, is full of intense drama and conflict, right, from the first crack of lightning and the raindrops start to fall and the ark is lifted up off of the supports and begins to be tossed to and fro in the waves and there's fear and confusion. Is this what God said was going to happen? Is He going to actually pull us through this? Is the boat going to sink? Are we all going to die? What's going to happen? And for 150 days in that sense of danger and fear and uncertainty, uh, sometimes the Christian life is like that, you know? Big adrenaline dump, love it, love it, love it. Mind at least focused on something, focused on something outside of me. But this last part of Noah's story is something totally different. There's no big dopamine hit. There's no big adrenaline rush. He's literally just sitting in a big boat full of animals with his family. He can't get more than 450 feet away from anybody. And he's just floating and waiting, totally quiet, endless sea, the sun is out and it seems like nothing is happening. There's, there's this great English word that we never use that describes perfectly what he's feeling. The word is inui. <laughs> we probably don't use the word because it, it sounds funny, but it's a great word, inui, and what it means is a feeling of listness, listlessness and dissatisfaction arising from a lack of occupation or excitement. It comes out of the same root where we get the word annoyed from, and it kind of carries that vibe of uh, that low-level, restless, dissatisfaction, kind of gnawing away in the background. It's real quiet, but it's there. And you're just going through the days and going through the motions. I think the, bird, the birds are kind of a rhetorical device for that, Right? It takes a, he takes a whole, in a, in a narrative that's concise and only, you know, focusing on the really important stuff. That's how biblical narrative is written. He takes in the middle of the flood story an entire paragraph to describe Noah releasing these birds, right? And the, the function is to make every, that makes time, you know, slow down. time dragging on. Can we get off the boat yet? No, not yet. Can we get off the boat yet? Nope, not yet. Now? Nope. Are we there yet, Dad? (laughs) No. (laughs) Nope, it's only been 15 minutes since the last time you asked. And time's dragging on, and there's Noah and his family drifting in the boat. And you know what? I think, I think, for me at least, we think that the crisis, when you're in deep conflict or there's real trouble or you're afraid, we think that's the hardest part of the Christian life. And maybe it is, depending on the crisis for sure. I'm not trying to downplay. The crisis is hard. But when you're in crisis, at least there's focus oftentimes there's focus outside of you, focus on what's going to happen. And so is crisis really the hardest part? Maybe. But I tend to side with that great American theologian Tom Petty when he says the waiting, the waiting is the hardest part. I've got a a book that I'm reading right now called The Dark Night of the Soul by this guy, St. John of the Cross. You can tell by that author name that it wasn't written yesterday. It was written, literally, it was written 500 years ago, but it reads every bit as fresh as it must have been 500 years ago. And the whole book, the whole book is really about that period of waiting when nothing exciting is happening. He takes the first seven chapters, and he talks about how what he calls beginners in in spirituality, beginners in the Christian faith, uh, manufacture excitement and drama in their religious experience in order to receive and get these sensual, the sensual satisfactions out of the spiritual life. To take like spiritual sounding things and then use them to get big dopamine hits and adrenaline hits and, and, and wonder, you know, and, and they think that they're, being in, they're advancing, but they're really not. And the whole, the, the, that was the beginning of the book. The purpose of the book is to say, this is what happens when you're beginning the spiritual life. And why it's so fresh is because like almost every little chapter I'm totally relating to, I'm like, oh, yeah, I do that. Yeah, I do that. Yeah, we do that. Yeah, we do that. The, you know, we are the endless, uh, you know, the long prayers and the fasting to make myself feel more spiritual, the endless reading of books, the use of theology to hold God at arm's length. Uh, all the things we do, which really he, he points out are the like, manifestations of the seven deadly sins under the thin veneer of spiritual practice. Uh, but he said, anyways, the whole point is that whole... All those things are the preface to saying this is what the beginning looks like, and when we move into the maturity of the Christian life is when God takes those things away. And all the excitement and comfort that you once felt from these things goes away. You still absolutely believe and you know that Christianity is true, but you enter this dry phase of life, or you're just waiting, and time is dragging on. And his point is that that point of waiting are these times of, of purification and sanctification, where God is sanctifying you. Why? What's so hard about the waiting? because you can't you're put in a position where you just can't think about anything else you're like stuck in that chair in that empty room where it's you and it's God and your thoughts turn inward by the direct the direction of the holy spirit and you start to see you and there's no electric shock button to hit to distract your mind And that's where a lot, a lot, a lot of growth happens. But it's so hard, right? It's so hard because it takes trust. You have to trust. Notice Noah's literally floating in a boat. He's got got no option but to wait and to trust that God's gonna do what he said he's going to do. And in that long period of having being forced in a position where he has to trust God. There's nothing he can do. He can't start paddling the boat. He can't make the mountains rise. He just has to float. He just has to wait. And it forces him into a spot where he has to exercise trust that God is going to do what he's going to do. And so there's our hero Noah floating, waiting, having no idea what God is doing or if he's going to do anything at all. At least that's how it feels. Now, what is God doing? It tells us what God's doing. God is remembering. That's the second part. As Noah waits, the picture of God is that God is remembering. Verse 1, but God remembered Noah. This isn't like we remember This isn't like Home Alone where the family gets to Paris and then realizes, Kevin, it's not like God is occupied with great uh, important celestial business and then all of a sudden looks up, Noah. (laughs) For God to remember means that he remembers his covenant promises. He remembers his covenant promises as God remembered Abraham. God remembered Rachel. It means that God remembers his covenant promises that he's made to us, and and he remembers by acting on those promises. And that's what God is doing. While Noah is waiting, God is not just saving Noah from something. He's saving him for something he's saving him for a whole new creation. And that's one of the bigger themes of this part of the book, just literally underneath the surface. uh, God was restoring and recreating the world, and the author is super clear about the idea he's trying to get across. Like last week, Brian taught us that the story of the flood was a story of de-creation. God was returning the world that He had created sequentially and in the same reverse order back to the formless void of watery chaos. And now, from that watery chaos, God begins to recreate a whole new creation. Listen to the, listen to the parallels. There's in the opening of Genesis 1.1, the Spirit hovers over the waters, getting ready to form and bring life. And this story... It says the wind, God brought a wind that went across the face of the waters. Wind and spirit in Hebrew, the same word, ruach. It really means that God's spirit begins to move over the face of the waters of the flood. And then we see the waters regathered into one place, just as it says in Genesis 1. We see the dry land appear, just as it says in Genesis 1. We see the birds returning to the heavens. We see vegetation returning and the leaf from the dove. We see living creatures called out of the ark to repopulate the earth in the same categories that we see in Genesis 1 land animals, beasts, creeping, crawling things, birds of the air. And we see the pinnacle, the creation of the recreation, as God brings forth humankind, again, male and female, out of the ark with a command to be fruitful and multiply. Again, to have dominion over the animals and to subdue and to live in the earth. So he's telling a very specific story. So, and what is the end game of that story? The end game of the story is that Noah and his family, they step out of judgment day and they step into the blessing of a pristine new reality, of a recreated world for them to live in and enjoy God and each other. And that's what God's doing. You know, if you, if you do the math, if you look at where things are happening and how the waters are receding and what Noah was able to see and what Noah was able to know, The spirit moving across the face of the waters and the waters beginning to recede happened way before Noah has that sense of waiting. While he's waiting, God has been acting the whole time. He's been, Noah can't see it. He doesn't know what's happening. But the, the story tells us that God continues to be faithful. What is God doing? He's doing what he does. He tears down so that he can restore. He breaks the bones so that he can reset them. He breaks us down so that he can heal us. He tears down the old world so that he can restore it and recreate it in the newness of life. That's what God does. Those long periods of waiting, the ones where we seem like nothing is happening Just below the surface of that, literally in Noah's case, God is bringing order out of chaos because that's what God does. He does it in the small story of our lives. When he gets a hold of us, he sometimes uses crisis. Sometimes he uses the excitement of building. And oftentimes he uses the long periods of waiting and uncertainty when we're forced to trust in him to tear down the old So that he can bring us and and rebuild us into new life, bringing order out of chaos. And that's the big story of the world too, recreating the world for us. And that recreation is happening now. Look, we are like sitting here. Here's another Sunday morning. We just spent another week that seemed like just like the week before that and the week before that, for the most part, uh... And yet, the supernatural reality is that right now, Jesus is reigning on the throne. Jesus has conquered our enemies. Jesus, by his death on the cross, conquered death and sin and Satan. And now he has ascended into heaven. And as we sit here waiting in the Ark House of God, metaphorically, Jesus is subduing all of our enemies... And he's building towards the pinnacle of recreating the whole earth so that someday we will step in, stepping into that story. We are in that story right now. We can't see it, uh, but God is moving. Even in the stillness and the weight, he's not idle. He is moving, and he's recreating. And that's the big, that's the big theological story that this story is telling, but there's an even bigger story being told here. And that's the third, last point. And that big story that's being told here is the big story of the whole Bible. I told you, like, you know, a couple weeks ago when I, I preached on uh, the beginning of the flood narrative and I used all these big theological words, one of them was that the story of the narrative, the narrative of the flood is eschatological, which is this big Three dollars seminary word that means it's talking about end times or or what God is doing, what God will be doing in the end to bring about His new creation for us, and we can really see that in this passage. But that's just the capstone of what's been happening from the since we started in Genesis one one. One of the big reasons I wanted to preach through this section of the Bible. What do I mean? The, I've, we've talked about how the Bible is, is organic in its, in its revelation. And what that means by organic, we mean that each successive part builds off the past. Whatever's been revealed in the very beginning chapters of the Bible, the next part of the Bible builds on that and starts adding information, adding clarity, adding detail to it. Uh, like the rings of a tree, if you cut a tree in half... And you look at it, and you see concentric rings moving out from the surface of that tree according to years of its life, right? And the Bible's kind of like that. The very first and central rings from the very beginning give us a full revelation of God's entire plan and history for the world, and each successive ring of revelation as we move through the rest of the Bible, it adds detail, it adds clarity, but the main story is already told up front this section, this chapter that we've just read, ends the very first major ring section of the Bible. Listen, listen to what happened so far. God has created everything seen and unseen. He's created human beings as the pinnacle to share in the divine nature and to rule on earth in righteousness. Human beings rebel against God and they trust in their own wisdom and knowledge and power instead of trusting God. And because of that, human sin then spirals out of control, creating spiritual disease that creates a moral insanity that becomes so bad, the only humane thing for God to do is to start over. A righteous man in obedience to God saves his family and a miniaturized version of creation through the day of judgment by being covered in the ark, and the family then weights protected in the ark, and then they emerge from judgment into a new creation. All the big parts of God's story, creation, fall, death spiral into sin, salvation through judgment, new creation, all of it is taught. The whole story of history, the whole story of God's salvation is being told right here in the first eight chapters of Genesis. Genesis. And from here on, we're just adding. We're just adding detail, adding some clarity, adding some, you know, adding clarity to it and who the Messiah will be and how he will come and how God is going to create and finalize this salvation. But the core of it is all right here. And we are now in the middle. We're in that story. We're in the middle of the death spiral of sin as the earth becomes more and more corrupt and more and more Insane as moral chaos begins to reign, we're in that cycle of descent, waiting for that time. We're waiting in the protection of God's house as His family, as His people, waiting for the time when God will bring judgment on the earth and we will step out of that judgment into a whole new creation. that the whole thing is taught right in the beginning. And for me, that's super encouraging. Why? Why would God do it like that? Why would God, I think we people living in a rational age as rational people, when we look at the Bible, we, we oftentimes want it to be more textbook, want it to be more like a systematic theology maybe, like you could just turn to a page and get instruction about you know, how should, I, how should I do this? Or what does God, you know, mean by this? To be able to have it all listed out in, in a systemized format. But that's not how God operates. God is the great artist. And God has created this great narrative art to tell his story that builds upon itself and builds upon itself in a way that the more, the deeper you study it, the more riches come out of it. It can never be... Depleted. It keeps getting better the more you understand it and the more you dig. Uh, but it's also encouraging to me because it's this, another layer of this critic-proof assurance that God is doing what He's promised to do. Again, we live in a skeptical age that has all sorts of clever arguments against why the Bible might not be true or isn't true. And we can, you know, in an argument like that, we can grant... Someone, any old version of how the Old Testament came to be, you want. It doesn't really matter because the story is still there. And the story still is understandable. It's been protected and and preserved by God, that organic revelation that tells the story of creation, of fall, of descent into sin, of judgment and of restoration and recreation and salvation of his people. And that's good to know. And God wants us to know. He wants us to know that even in the long wait, no matter what part of life we're in, that he is working, he's restoring, he is recreating a pristine new world for us to step into. And above all, he wants us to know that it's worth the wait. Amen? That's part. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word the massive story that you tell of what you are doing in the world, your purposes, as much as we as creatures can understand them, Lord, you, you've created a world in goodness to share with us your beauty and your love and your person so that we might know you and be blessed by that and enjoy you forever. Uh, and the story of chaos and sin setting in, but Lord, you haven't... You are allowing sin to run its course for a lot of reasons, including allowing us to see the nature of evil and what happens when we try to live without God. Uh, But you've also made promises, Lord, that we know are true because of stories like this. You've caused these things to happen in real life and preserved them for us so that we know... Just as Noah and his family stepped into a whole new creation, that we too will step into a creation that is more wonderful than we can even imagine. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust in that and to trust you so that you might recreate us as we wait uh, and so that we might trust you in the meantime as you do what you promised to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing uh, as we meditate on God's Word and approach His table.